Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight on a busy and unprecedented news night. A jury in New York found former President Donald Trump liable for sexual abuse and defamation in that E. Jean Carroll case. Carroll alleged that in the spring of 1996, Donald Trump raped her in a department store dressing room, then defamed her when he denied her claim and said she was, quote, not his type. In just a moment, I will talk to Natasha Stoinoff, who testified during this trial that she, too, was assaulted by Trump. And our panel will give us their take on what all of this means. Plus, Truth Challenge Congressman George Santos has just been charged by the Justice Department in a federal probe and could appear in court tomorrow. What does this mean for his future in Congress and what will Republicans do now? And Tucker Carlson is waging war against Fox for firing him. He's promising to relaunch his show, but in a place his audience may not expect. Our panel shares their strong thoughts. But let's start with the verdict in the case against Donald Trump. After deliberating for two and a half hours, the jury found former President Trump liable of sexual abuse and defamation and awarded E. Jean Carroll $5 million. After the verdict, Carroll released a statement saying, quote, I filed this lawsuit against Donald Trump to clear my name and to get my life back. Today, the world finally knows the truth. The victory is not just for me, but for every woman who has suffered because she was not believed, end quote. Donald Trump says he will file an appeal. So let's get to our panel. We have our legal experts, Joey Jackson and Ellie Honig here, and CNN's correspondent, Kara Scannell, who has been covering this case. Kara, I start with you because you were in the courthouse and watched all of this unfold. What was it like that moment when the verdict was read? You know, so the judge had addressed this saying, we have the verdict, we're going to bring everyone in at 3 o'clock. And he gave a warning to the courtroom. He said... I, I, I want decorum kept here. He wanted no, he said, no jumping up and down, no reaction. So everyone followed that. Um, when his clerk read the verdict, the first question was, does the jury find that Donald Trump raped E. Jean Carroll? That was a no. Then the next question, does the jury find that he sexually abused her? That was a yes. And from then on, it was all yeses for Carroll. And she was sitting there holding the hand of one of her attorneys as this was being read. You know, she appeared to look very relieved, you know, a smile. They looked at each other a few times, smiling as they went through, and the jury ultimately awarded her $5 million. You know, what I thought was so interesting, after the verdict was read and the jury was excused, Trump's attorney, Joe Tacopino, walked over and shook her hand. I mean, you know, given the external kind of fight, this whole case about the defamation claim between Trump and Carroll, her lawyer went over and did that and shook her attorney's hands. Uh, We do have a reaction from Trump tonight. He um, was on his platform, Truth Social, and um, we should take a listen to that. What else can you expect from a Trump-hating, Clinton-appointed judge who went out of his way to make sure that the result of this trial was as negative as it could possibly be, speaking to and in control of a jury from an anti-Trump area, which is probably the worst place in the United States for me to get a fair trial. We'll be appealing this decision. It's a disgrace. Yeah, and so his lawyer afterwards, uh, he didn't leave the courthouse for more than an hour and a half. He did say he did speak to Donald Trump on the phone, came out and then addressed reporters and said, you know, Trump felt he couldn't get a fair trial in New York, and he laid out some of the areas that they plan to appeal on. Okay, so let's talk about the appeal, Ellie, because you think that he stands a good chance on appeal, yes? I don't think he has a better than 50% chance, no. But I think I think he has a, reason, a few reasonable arguments to make on appeal. The main argument I think he's going to make is that the judge allowed in evidence that should not have been allowed in, including 
including evidence of what we call other bad acts. And I know our next guest is Why one is of those witnesses. And I know what you're yeah. talking about, about the, the, the pattern, that, yeah. that perhaps Donald Trump had a pattern. Why shouldn't right. those be allowed in? Because the law says that the other bad acts have to be close enough in time and in substance to the actual act at issue. And here the argument will be, the allegation here related to something that happened around 1996. Eugene Carroll didn't know a date. Yet the testimony came from one woman who claimed she was assaulted 17 years prior to that, 1979, and the other, who I think is our, our guest later, about a decade after that. And so I think the argument will be those acts were too remote in time, and it was therefore unpre- unfairly prejudi- prejudicial. I just do want to say this, because I know this judge, Judge Kaplan. I appeared in front of him many, many times. That statement by Donald Trump is wrong. Judge Kaplan is not an ideologue. He is not a political judge. He's very much, as Kara saw this week, very much in charge of his courtroom. I probably appeared in front of him, I don't know, a hundred times. Until I heard that, I didn't even know who appointed him to the bench. I didn't care. It never showed. That's good to know. That's great context. And by the way, she did say it happened in spring of 1996. She had narrowed it down to spring of 1996. Okay, Joey, um, the jury awarded her $5 million for sexual abuse and defamation. How did they get to that number? I I think a couple of ways. The first thing is, is that remember that a person who testified was an expert and that expert testified as to how many people would have heard Donald Trump call this a her a liar and a hoaxer on his platform up to 18 million people. And then how many would have believed it? Right. And how many would have believed it was, I think they said, almost six million. And then you get to the issue of what it would cost to repair the reputation. And there was testimony as to almost three million. And so this is not an exact science. And of course, as we noted, it wasn't about the money to her attorneys. They said that in as much as their closing argument. They didn't ask for a specific uh, monetary number. They just asked for vindication. And I think that's exactly what she got. Kara, the judge did something that um, some people have said was unusual in that he advised the jury, um, you are now free to identify yourselves because they've been anonymous. You are now free to identify yourselves. But I wouldn't do it. Well, let me, let me, let me read it, basically. <laughs> My advice to you is to not, is not to identify yourselves. Not now and not for a long time. If you're one who elects to speak to others and to identify yourselves to others, I direct you not to identify anyone else who sat on the jury. Each of you owes that to the other, whatever you decided for yourself. Have you heard that before, Kara? Something like that? No. I mean, and particularly with the judge thing, I advise you not. And I think the reason is, you know, he decided in advance that this jury was going to be uh, anonymous. And the reason was because of Donald Trump's statements. This was, if you remember, just a few weeks ago when Trump was, uh, you know, we were waiting for the indictment in the Manhattan DA's case. and, And then there was, you know, Trump was out there publicly attacking the district attorney, also the judge overseeing that case. It was in that context that the judge decided in this case to make the jury anonymous because of all the attacks that Trump was making. And he wanted to protect the jurors, not so they wouldn't feel intimidated anyway, so they couldn't possibly be contacted by anyone. And the process, he wanted to protect this trial so it would be a fair trial. Okay, friends, stick around because I want to bring in now Natasha Stoinoff, who testified during this trial about her own experience with Donald Trump. She says that Trump forcibly kissed her against her will during a photo shoot and interview she was conducting at Mar-a-Lago for People magazine in 2005. Natasha went public with her allegations during the 2016 presidential campaign, and she joins me now. Natasha, great to see you. Thank you so much for making time. I know it's been quite a day for you. So tell us what what happened, what you thought, what you experienced when you heard the verdict. Um, First, I was shocked that it was so fast. So I just assumed that that was good news. And my, my next reaction was real gratefulness to this jury. Um, they worked really hard, these anonymous New Yorkers. 
And unless they make themselves known, tomorrow we're going to be sitting next to them all in the subway and um, not know them. And they really did great work. So I felt very grateful to them. And I, I got to say that. The, yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. The next thing I thought was it's really hard to come forward about these things. And especially hard when the, uh, the, the man you're talking about is, a, is very powerful. So I feel like when I heard the verdict today, I felt that nothing is more powerful than the truth. And Natasha, you did come forward. I mean, you, you did so, um, as we said, in 2016, and then again in this trial. Um, and what was that like? What was it like in the trial? When you were testifying, could you read the room? Could you tell what the jurors, how they were responding to you? What was that whole experience like? Some of them were um, watching me and listening very intently. Some of them weren't looking at me at all. And I got to say that I was quite nervous before I got up there. Um, I'd never done anything like that before. And I never actually even told this story verbally. I just wrote it in People Magazine those years ago. I never did any interviews at the time. So I was nervous. But once I got up there, uh, something very strange happened. It was, it was surreal. It was spiritual. I don't know how else to describe it. But I felt like it was just me alone with that jury and that I was telling them something very important. And um, it felt, uh, it just felt like I was supposed to be there talking to them. Um, this case, of course, was specifically about what E. Jean Carroll was alleging. Um, but, you know, you told the story about what happened, what you say happened to you in 2005 and that you were on this photo shoot and that you had this experience where everything was proceeding along as normal. And um, Donald Trump asked you if you wanted to see another room at Mar-a-Lago while um, Melania, who was pregnant, went up to change an outfit. And did what E. Jean Carroll described happening in that dressing room, how quickly it happened, how she was overpowered by Donald Trump physically, did that all ring true to you from your experience? It was very similar to mine in that way. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why her team asked me to be um, uh, to go to give testimony. Uh, there was the whole enclosed room alone and door shutting uh, that was uh, parallel to mine. And Eugene uh, interviewed me for the Atlantic magazine a few years ago, and we talked about how eerily similar that was. And when I hear her details, it reminds me of mine and vice versa. And so when the when Donald Trump's attorney was saying, you know, trying to make um, something of an indictment about how she didn't scream, why didn't she yell for help? What were your thoughts? My thought was, I'm just like Eugene in, in, in situations like that when someone's hurting me. I, I and I actually said this on the stand that I tried to speak and nothing came out. Um, I think a lot of women or men and men uh, freeze and choke up. I know I do. And I think that's actually very common, very common. Um, there are roughly 15 women who have made similar accusations about something that Donald Trump did. So was this a victory for all of you as well? Very much so. We're all exchanging emails today. I think that Eugene's victory, that, that we feel it. It feels validating to us. And um, believe me, there's a couple of bottles of champagne that are being uh, uncorked and drink today. 
but um, we feel it is ours as well, even though it's not our case. Um, of course, Donald Trump says he's going to appeal. Does that concern you? It concerns me, um, but this judge, I don't know, he, I don't know much about the legal system, but he just seemed to go about this very smartly, and um, it just some, it felt very airtight. I don't know what he needs to appeal. Um, I'm sure Eli and, and your gang there can discuss that. And, but um, I hope that it's it was so strong that it that w- there would be no. Well, Natasha Stoinoff, thank you very much. We really appreciate your time. Uh, we appreciate you sharing what it was like in the courtroom and beyond and telling this story again. We really appreciate you. Thanks, Allison. Coming up. Congressman George Santos now charged by the Justice Department in a federal investigation. We could see him in court in a matter of hours. That's next. Truth challenged Republican Congressman George Santos now facing a significant legal challenge. The freshman congressman who lied his way into the job tonight is facing federal charges. Sources tell us that Santos could be in court as soon as tomorrow. I'm back now with Ellie Honig. We're also joined by writer, host and comedian Akilah Hughes, former Senate candidate Joe Pinion and Josh Barrow, host of the Very Serious Podcast. Great to have all of you here. Um, What are the charges here, Ellie? (laughs) We don't know. We'll find out tomorrow. But let me let me speculate based on sort of the Republic reporting that's out there. I think it's going to be one of two things. And let me say, first of all, not a crime to lie to your constituents, not a crime to lie during your campaign. If it was, we'd have a lot of people locked up. Uh, I think it's going to be one or two, both of two things. One, if you lie in your election paperwork to the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, that's a lie. And we all remember the story where he had all these different uh, expenditures that were exactly $199.99. I doubt that that actually is the amount. The reason he cut it off there is because if it's $200 or more, then you have to give detailed reporting. So that could be the basis for one set of charges. Also, there's this persistent question about where did this guy get his money, right? He went from basically nothing to having quite a bit of money very quickly. And he's been asked this. There's a, Matt Gates asked him this on Matt Gates' podcast. This. Let's listen yeah, to this. Yeah, I mean, listen was, to this. There were $700,000 that he basically couldn't account for. Right. So here's that moment. One of the principal critiques I've heard is that a lot of money uh, was donated to your campaign by you, 700000 I believe. Where did it come from? Well, I'll tell you where it didn't come from. It didn't come from China, Ukraine, or Burisma. How about that? <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, that is an answer. <laughs> I mean, even Matt Gates felt compelled to follow up on that and still didn't get an answer. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, well... I mean, Akela, your thoughts? I mean, you know, it does seem like chickens are coming home to roost. If you lie enough, eventually somebody's going to find the truth. But yeah, I I, I like the waiting. I like the anticipation of like, what's it going to be? Is it the lie that he's half black? Is it the lie that That, he isn't that drag queen? Right. None of those things are crimes, but maybe they'll come up, you know? (laughs) And I just want to see him on a stand at some point explaining what is true, you know, under oath. Just to recap for you. Um, here's our full screen of some of the falses. It's, it's, an, it's called a non-exhaustive list because, you know, we only have an hour, okay? <laughs> so falsely claimed he had Jewish ancestry, falsely claimed his grandparents were Holocaust survivors, falsely claimed his mother was at the World Trade Center on 9-11, falsely claimed he worked for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, falsely claimed he graduated college, falsely claimed he played college volleyball. I mean, there's just, there's, there's much more, but those were some of, some of the hits. Here's how the GOP 
uh, Joe, is responding to these charges. Um, I will read you some of these responses. He says, so uh, Congressman Mike Lawler says, I, re- I reiterate my call that he should resign. Uh, Congresswoman Maliotakis says, I'm not surprised. I understand this is where it was headed. Congressman Hill says, I do believe that if a member of Congress is charged with a federal crime, they should resign. And then Congressman Ryan Zinke says, I'm surprised he made it as long as he did. <laughs> None of those are ringing endorsements of Congressman Santos. Well, look, I, I think, again, whatever you think of, you know, our political differences, we have the Nassau uh, County GOP that called for his resignation when the tonnage of lies were discovered. We've had the state GOP echo many of those same sentiments. Uh, sentiments. Much of the New York State uh, congressional delegation has also echoed those sentiments. So I just think at some point, uh, the reality is, yes, it's comical to maybe chuckle about the Jew-ish or how many spikes on the volleyball court did he have at Baruch. But uh, I think to your point, the million dollar question or $750,000 question was always going to be, where did the money come from? How did somebody who in a 2020 election cycle was recorded as making $55,000 a year suddenly, one cycle later, be able to afford to loan his campaign around $700,000 while his own sister was effectively being evicted at the same time? So I think those are the questions uh, some of the stuff that I anticipate we'll see uh, in those papers that are released tomorrow. So this, these are charges. This isn't a conviction. So what mm-hmm. does uh, Majority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy do now? Well, I mean, the, the standard that they, I mean, they, they just had a Republican member of Congress who was charged and convicted, uh, Jeff Fortenberry. But that's uh, convicted. Nebraska. Right. But so, the, but so that's what Kevin McCarthy pointed to today, basically saying, you know, we went through this and, you know, the, we didn't expel him while he was on trial. The, the House rarely acts to expel its own members. A lot of members will resign uh, at some point when they get involved in, in this sort of situation. But I assume that one of the things George Santos is holding on to is that if he's getting into a position where he's having to strike a plea agreement with the government, one of the chips he has is that he can agree to resign as part of that agreement. If he resigns, he's given that up. And he doesn't have that, and he doesn't have that option as part of the prosecution. So I don't think that he is likely to go willingly. And McCarthy, you know, I, I'm the, I think that there's a, a tension for Republicans. Nassau County GOP would like him gone because they would like a normal Republican to run for that seat. It's one of the, someone who's involved with National, Nassau I, County GOP. I think it goes a little beyond that. I think, again, I think, I, to be fair, I think that we can all agree many people are deeply offended by this attempt to kind of co-opt this Jewish history. People are deeply offended by the notion that he would try to defraud uh, a military veteran and a dog. So, look, I I, 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 I think, again, these aren't... We can chuckle about it, but they aren't laughing matters. I think there are many constituents in NY3 who are deeply hurt. There are people, uh, donors that I know, that put their faith in his word. So you think he should resign? Look, I think the factual reality that we face is that you are innocent until proven guilty. It is more likely than not that a great number of the things he is accused of are true. But you're okay with him staying in the position until he's convicted, which could I, take I, a while. I am not okay. I, I think that George Santos should have resigned a long time ago. I think that would have been the good and decent thing to do. But I think that as a matter of principle, to ensure that, again, we have fair treatment across the board, whether Republican, Democrat, that people should be able to have their day in court. Yeah, so, that Ellie, the, that's interesting what Josh raised, which was that he'll hold it as a chip and say, well, okay, I'll resign as part of a plea. But that's not what the government asks you to do, right? I mean, is, right. That, does that, is that a normal part of a plea agreement? No. No, I mean, politician? Right. It's, it's rare that you have a case involving an elected official, but I suppose it's something that could come into play in negotiations. I mean, it's certainly not in the handbook, the DOJ <laughs> handbook, but, you know, you do need to look at the, the bigger, broader picture here. And one of the questions, I think, for, for all those uh, members, we just saw the quotes saying, I condemn him and he should resign, is will you vote to expel 
And look, I don't know what the answer is going to be. It takes two thirds, meaning you need about 77 Republicans, if I'm doing this math right, to expel him. Uh, I don't think it's particularly likely for the reasons that Joe has said. But, but let's keep in mind, if we look at the timeline here, from the time until now, until a trial, until sentencing, until an appeal, nothing's final until an appeal. Yeah. We're going to be into the next election, next election cycle. cycle. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, I was sensing from your facial expression that you can't imagine getting to the point where they would actually expel. Of course not. I think that, you know, this country is predicated on, you know, it's a two-party system. We have a few fringe elements. But reality is they're going to keep that majority any way they can. They're not going to do the honorable thing, which is say, hey, the American people deserve better than someone who is under investigation to this degree. Um, and so we're all going to watch a circus when we have real issues we could be dealing with instead of, you know, we're just going to listen to him lie some more. So... Well, okay. I, I think some of this stuff, I mean, I'm interested in seeing how he actually accounts for some of this stuff. He's had the change in the treasurer. Then he effectively, they changed the entire structure of the loans. First, it was one big lump sum of 500000 Then they said, well, they came in over a staggered Well, period. when he's been confronted, right. Joe, in the past, I mean, you saw what he did right. there with that case. He deflects. Generally, he changes the well, subject. Well, I, I think the, the true thing, and I think maybe the true yeah. test for Republicans will be uh, he has already unchecked the box that said that the $500,000 was from him personally, right? If he goes into a court proceeding and says, in fact, it didn't come from me, it came from X or it came from Y, if he stipulates that, I think the Republicans would have no choice but to have him expelled because at that point, uh, he has effectively acknowledged uh, that he has a f- broken campaign finance laws in ways one cannot even begin to comprehend. Uh, quickly, Josh? Yeah, I mean, I well, I, I, I'm just skeptical that we will see financial transactions that actually match up with all the items that are in the, the financial reports. I mean, just because you report that you paid out $199.99 over and over again doesn't necessarily mean that you did. And one possible explanation for how he got the money and put it in, in his campaign account is that he didn't really. You know, if you, if you had claimed that you loaned your, your, your campaign money and then you lost your congressional election and then you repaid the loan to yourself out of the campaign, that could be a way to get money out of the campaign that you never put into it. So I'm very interested to see whether he really ever put that $700,000. Okay, so stay tuned, everyone. Thank you very much for all of that. All right, meanwhile, Tucker Carlson making a big announcement after being booted from Fox. He's taking his show to Twitter. What does Elon Musk have to say about that? And what is a show on Twitter anyway? (laughs) We're going to get into all of that next. Tucker Carlson announcing plans to relaunch his show, this time on Twitter. Carlson made the announcement in a video posted to Twitter. You can't have a free society if people aren't allowed to say what they think is true. Speech is the fundamental prerequisite for democracy. That's why it's enshrined in the first of our constitutional amendments. Amazingly, as of tonight, there aren't many platforms left that allow free speech. The last big one remaining in the world, the only one, is Twitter, where we are now. All right, my panel is back. We also have Los Angeles Times op-ed columnist Elsie Granderson and CNN media analyst Sarah Fisher is joining us as well. Sarah, he said, Tucker went on to say that he's going to put his show on Twitter. What is a Twitter TV show? 
<laughs> That's a great question. I think we're all dying to find out. Twitter, of course, has character limits, but when you subscribe to Twitter Blue, its subscription service, you get a little bit more space. Now, you can add a video to Twitter, not a full hour-length video, though, Allison. That's going to require a lot of work on the back end. I would imagine if you were to do a show, it would be truncated, so it wouldn't be that full hour that he had at Fox. And he might want to break it up, maybe put out some segments in different tweets, etc. But as I understand Twitter right now, they're going to have to race to build that type of functionality to get a full hour-long show there. Although they do have live functionality. So if he wanted to go live and put a Twitter show up, I think that would be possible. Okay, that's interesting. Um, Tucker, you're also reporting, um, Sarah, that Tucker is accusing Fox of fraud and breach of contract. So how does he say they defrauded him? So basically what he's saying is that Fox executives, with sources tell me, are Fox's chief legal and policy officer and Rupert Murdoch himself, made these promises to Carlson, basically saying, look, if you hand over your personal communications, we'll safeguard it, we'll make sure that it doesn't get leaked. And then he's now saying, well, look, it's been leaked, it's been reported on in the media, and so you have then broken a verbal promise to me, and that... Carlson's lawyers are alleging is a breach of his employment contract because the terms of an agreement between the employer and the person who is working for the company have changed. Now, of course, that was up to a court that will be up to a court to decide whether or not that's actually going to be considered a breach of his contract. Okay, Uh, thank you, Sarah, very much. Um, Let me bring in our panel now. Um, Josh, didn't he they have to hand it over in discovery? I mean, I, I, why is Fox responsible for that? It, who, they can't be responsible for all leaks. Well, I mean, there's, there's also there's, there's a number of, of accusations in, in, in this uh, in this letter to Fox, including that he claims that one member of the Fox board told him that it was a condition of the settlement that they would fire him. Now, Something both, Dominion has re- denied. Dominion and Fox have both denied that. Um, it doesn't make sense as something for Dominion to demand because Tucker was not even really at the center of their of their allegations. It was more about Maria Bartiromo and Janine Pirro and various other people. And Dominion doesn't get any real financial gain from them firing Tucker Carlson. So I think first thing I would say is just because Tucker Carlson has accused Fox of doing certain things in a letter doesn't mean that he's done all of them. Now, obviously, a lot of people have been speculating about various materials that have gotten into the media since Tucker Carlson's fi- firing, um, including that text message in which he is commenting on these the, the, this, this riot and saying, you know, well, this is not how white people fight and that Fox's concern was that people were going to find out that Tucker Carlson was racist and that that was why they fired him. Um, so, you know, the idea that Fox was behind those leaks, I, I do not find that idea crazy, given some of the ways that Fox has dealt with departing talent in the, in the past. But it, I mean, I think this is all an effort to get out of his Fox contract. And that's been clear in the news coverage that Tucker wants to be out there in the arena. He's not allowed to go and do another show unless Fox lets him out of his contract. And so far, Fox has been continuing to pay him. They can keep him under contract until the end, until after the next election. I guess the bigger question, guys, is what does this mean for the world? (laughs) What does this mean for the world? If he doesn't have his powerful platform on Fox, which is a powerful platform, and it's on Twitter, does that, you know, suddenly reduce his power? I mean, I think his power has been so greatly reduced. Like, to say that you even have a Twitter show, we're all asking what that means because (laughs) it's not a thing. Like, I I upload videos of my dog. My dog does not have a Twitter show. (laughs) So I think, you know, this is a man who has been embarrassed publicly, has lost his job publicly. This feels like a last gasp in the same way that Elon Musk owning Twitter feels like the last gasp of trying to be relevant. Um, It's a dying social network, you know? Like, no one knows who's verified. The people who are verified are now unhinged. 
I just don't see what he gets out of this. And his audience is largely older, doesn't know how to have two-factor verification, especially not not using their phone. Um, So I don't see this as some great comeback. I see this as just diminishing returns in every way and embarrassing. I think that's interesting, but I would also just caution that reports of his demise and of Twitter's may be premature because, (laughs) you know, Tucker, um, I think, does have a grip on a large portion yes. of America. And they, I mean, we, if you read the comments under his announcement, people are like, can't wait, uh, you know, the hell with Fox. Like, they're ready to go wherever he's going. Which is why the question about power first needs to, we need to first define how are we defining power? You know, yes, he lost the power that he got from being on Fox, but what other power does he still have and how is he going to use that power? Because as we saw, Fox was just one aspect of his influence. He's influenced in a lot of different areas in terms of everyday life. And while he may not have the same audience size on Twitter, he may not need the same size to have a similar or greater impact. So as we discuss this, power isn't simply about Twitter followers or simply being on television. Power is what's happening in those rooms where it happens. Well, one of the things... (laughs) Thank you for that Hamilton quote. I like that. (laughs) I was wondering if he was paying Uh, (laughs) Um, One of the ways that he had power in these rooms where it happened is that he did have the ear, and in fact... Um, often more than the ear of some politicians like Kevin McCarthy. He got Kevin McCarthy to hand over the tapes from January 6th. He was very influential in Republican political circles. Do you think that he will still have that? Well, I think that influence still exists. Uh, Will it wane a little bit? We'll have to see. I think, again, if you look at somebody like Ron DeSantis, he was easily able to get a message out, whatever that message of the week was that they put on the placard at the front of those podiums. So, Yes, that's going to change a little bit. I think also don't necessarily uh, dismiss Twitter right away. Certainly, uh, he's probably going to deal with the fact that, to your point, a large portion of that 3.6 million that were tuning in uh, don't have the two-factor authentication, <laughs> don't, uh, authentication, don't actually know where they can even download Twitter from, right? But there also is a potential for new audiences, right? I make the comparison to uh, somebody who says they are a member or supporter of Planned Parenthood versus somebody who says they are a member or supporter of the NRA, even though they haven't necessarily given any money in 10 or 20 years, right? It's that type of uh, synthetic organization of people who support someone, and many of them had been getting his information in the digital landscape anyway, whether it was via Facebook, uh, whether it was via Twitter. So I just think that there is the opportunity even if they're not necessarily watching him live during a Twitter live, for those clips to be recorded, to be dispersed uh-huh. through YouTube, through a, a vast multitude yeah. of an increasingly fractured but also growing digital space. And, and Sarah, and then there was this other plot twist on all of this, and that was what Elon Musk had to say about it. He said, I also want to be clear, this was after Tucker's statement, that we have not signed a deal of any kind whatsoever. <laughs> Tucker is subject to the same rules and rewards of all content creators. Rewards means subscriptions and advertising revenue share coming soon, which is a function of how many people subscribe and the advertising views associated with the content. I hope that many others, particularly from the left, also choose to be content creators on this platform. That, I mean, that is a strange announcement, announcing that you've just landed your biggest star. Right. You would expect him to be welcoming Tucker with open arms. And instead, he's saying, wait a minute, you're subject to the same rules as everyone else. We're going to fact check you using community notes just like everybody else. Look, Elon Musk has a tough 
job on his hands. He's got to bring advertisers back. He's got to make sure users stay on the platform. And he knows that by bringing on a polarizing figure like Tucker Carlson, even if he's really popular on the right, that could jeopardize his ability to continue to grow the business. So that's why I think you see him respond in in a tempered manner, saying, look, it's great that you're here, but we're not going to give you special treatment just because you're doing this show with us. Uh, The last thing I'd say, Allison, is Tucker, I think, is going to explore other options. I don't expect the Twitter thing to be the only thing he does. I mean, Newsmax CEO Chris Ruddy has said that we'd still welcome a show with Carlson. And so I think maybe he'll try out the Twitter thing. I think he likes the zeitgeist and the, you know, opinion leader focus of that audience. But he'll probably do other stuff, too. Sarah, thank you very much for your reporting. Great to have you. All right, friends, stick around because actor Richard Dreyfuss is pushing back against new diversity guidelines for the Academy Awards, saying they make him, quote, vomit. We're going to explain his reasons next. Because it's patronizing. Because it says that we're so fragile that we don't, can't have our, our feelings hurt. Well, actor Richard Dreyfuss has some strong comments on the Academy Awards' new diversity guidelines. Speaking with PBS's Margaret Hoover... Dreyfus slammed the new rules on diversity and inclusion standards for best picture eligibility. They make me vomit. Why? Because this is an art form. It's also a a form of commerce and it makes money, but it's an art. And no one should be telling me as an artist that I have to give in to the latest, most current idea of what morality is. I'm sorry, I don't think that there's a minority or a majority in the country that has to be catered to like that. All right, let's bring in my panel, see what they have to say. So, Elsie, um, here's what the um, Academy was wants in terms of their criteria. Here's their new criteria. Films must meet at least two of the four benchmarks to be eligible to win Best Picture. They include featuring actors from underrepresented groups in significant roles or accounting for at least 30% of the cast. Similar criteria in terms of working on the film behind the scenes, uh, a significant commitment to paid apprenticeships, internships, and career development, significant representation among the teams devoted to marketing, publicity, and distribution. So, I mean, I, I, I assume he's saying that, that none of that has to do with creativity, that he's saying he's an artist and that maybe even those kinds of bureaucratic mandates hurt the art. Your thoughts? Well, <clears throat> he has built his career being able to take advantage of all of the dynamics of systemic racism that hits every aspect of American life, including Hollywood. And it would have been great if Mr. Holland... <laughs> and decided to fight for what's right back in the 90s when he was on top. This seems more like sour grapes. This seems more like I'm an out-of-work actor and I'm struggling and I need to blame someone. Oh, I'm going to blame the brown people. I'm sitting here going, I think the most important aspect of this entire conversation has nothing to do with what's in front of the camera, but actually what's going on behind the camera. Mm-hmm. Because as a person who has worked in media as long as I have, 20-plus years, I can tell you, I've seen plenty of networks sprinkle a little dust in front of the camera Mm -hmm. and it's baby powder everywhere else. Mm -hmm. So it's important that the Oscars point that out and that's part of the process as well. So Mr. Dreyfus, I'm sorry that um, you have to share (laughs) all of a sudden. 
But if you really feel committed about the blackface, go for it, bro. As you yeah, were saying. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, he was saying that he can't play Othello. What a travesty. And I'm saying do it. There's no part of those rules you just read that said he can't be in blackface. I doubt anyone would care to see it. I don't think he'd be nominated for an Oscar. So I, I'm just confused about why he chose to speak. It seems like he needs to feel relevant. He has not been nominated for an Oscar in any role. Denzel being nominated for Macbeth. It was a great performance. Um, so I just don't think his concerns are relevant to the reality of the rules from the Academy. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I think for me, I'm less interested in the comments of Mr. Holland's opus. <laughs> I'm, I'm more concerned about the reality of what is attempting to be achieved. Uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember when we had 227 on TV, when we had rock on TV, when we had strong black roles in prime time. They were underappreciated. They were underpaid, but they certainly were getting people to watch. And my concern is that even if we look at something, um, you know, as dissimilar, but also similar as the NFL, where we've had the Rooney rule in place, where we are forcing NFL franchises to interview uh, black coaches for senior football positions, the results nearly a decade later, they speak for themselves. It is not working. And so for me, I get tired of people of color, black people, Hispanic people begging others to do what we have the power to do for ourselves. Uh, and when I look at something as recent as Tower Heist, which was supposed to be, in the words of Eddie Murphy, uh, a black uh, Ocean's Eleven. And yet again, we didn't have the wherewithal to come together or the resources put aside to be able to make something like that come to fruition. So to me, to heck with the Oscars. Uh, who cares about your cheap trophy anyway? I think, again, we have to find better ways to come together as a community of creatives uh, to make sure that we are represented behind the camera, but also to make sure that we are doing our part to make sure that Tyler Perry is not the only person with a studio Amen. to ensure that we can actually bring those great stories, the first black emperor of Rome, right, to talk about people like Robert Smalls who stole that Confederate ship, to talk about the fact that the first person ever shot in the Revolutionary War was a black man. I mean, these are great stories about black people connected and rooted in but the American experience. But you don't think experience. that people can mandate it, that... that the um, academy can mandate that these. these I, I, my concern is that it's not going to work because people hire who they know. People do what they want to do, and at right. the end of the day, to your point, uh, power concedes nothing without a demand. But if you're not holding uh, the actual handle of the knife, you're still holding the blade. To me, again, we are not learning from history. Ahead, we need to be focused on coming together. The, the way this rule is structured, where you only have to meet two of the four criteria, <laughs> you can do it just on the back of the apprenticeships and the marketing part which basically means for a major studio, this is a budget line item. They can take a movie that has whatever level of representation on screen and in the production and get it to qualify by throwing money at the other two categories of this. So I think that it is a little bit of an empty gesture. I, don't, I also don't think it's an appropriate role for the Academy. I think the, I think the category is called best picture. You're supposed to be evaluating the product, not the manner in which the product was made. And I think if members of the Academy want to vote for a film that doesn't meet two of the four criteria, I think they ought to be able to. I don't, it doesn't make me vomit. I don't have a strong opinion about it in the way that Richard Dreyfuss apparently does, but but no, I think that you know, I don't I don't think that the I don't think this is the function of an award like this. I think that's a function of the studios themselves and the commitments that the, the studios choose to make. Well, we know the studios aren't really. I, I will push back <laughs> on the idea that the the idea to be a best picture doesn't encompass the production part of it because the producers are on stage to accept the award. It's not just the actors and the director. The producers are up there, and oftentimes the producers are the one that's talking. So they represent mm -hmm. not just the art in front, but the entire production, which would include who is actually shooting the film, who's doing the makeup and hair, and et cetera. Right, but it's best picture. It's not best production. I mean, yes, they award it to the producers at the end, but I don't think it's the role of the, of, of the Oscars 
to, to set to set out guidelines about the manner in which the, sh- in, the in which the film should be made. It's supposed to be it's, it's a criticism exercise. Also, I mean, are we war? are we pretending that the Oscars are a meritocracy in any sense? Like <laughs> well, the movies yes. that are even they're not at all. Well, I mean, the I mean, movies that are show they are supposed to be. That's right. But <laughs> so are they? I mean, like yeah. literally, the movies that get made, it's all political from the right. begin the beginning of the process to the end. So to pretend that this is like an actual like an Olympic course where we're in influencing something that isn't already heavily influenced. I mean, the actual academy that votes for these things is already overwhelmingly white. So it's not as if changing the things that happen behind the scenes is going to change who's voting, the electorate, what's happened historically. I I just think that it's silly for an actor to be this upset about it when the reality is these studios are going to do the whatever they can to keep the exact same stuff in place. Especially the history that we've seen of white actors taking black roles and roles of other minorities. Mm-hmm. Like no one's. Yeah. I mean, Scarlett Johansson <laughs> still exists. I mean, I, and even to All that right, point, we, right? Guys, I think we have to go. <laughs> we have to go. <laughs> to, yeah, to, I know these crazy things called breaks that we have to take. But you, we will continue this during the break, and we'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> One of the country's largest military installations has a new name tonight. Fort Hood in Killeen, Texas, which was named after a Confederate general, is now known as Fort Cavazos, named in honor of General Richard Edward Cavazos. That's a veteran of the Korean and Vietnam Wars who was the Army's first Hispanic four-star general. Cavazos was a native to Texas. He was born to Mexican-American parents. He served in the Army for 33 years before his retirement in 1984. The general died in 2017, but was warmly remembered today in a ceremony at the base where he served, which now bears his name. The base is one of nine Army installations being renamed as part of a program to remove Confederate names from military posts. All right, and coming up, some of our favorite reporters are here to talk about the stories that they are working on for tomorrow. They're going to share their scoops with us. That's next. Hi, guys. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters. We have Harry Anton, Kara Scannell, Jeff Zeleny joins us tonight, and Eva McKen. Great to have all of you guys here. Okay, let's start with former President Donald Trump. He was found liable in the E. Jean Carroll defamation and battery case. The jury awarded Carroll nearly $5 million in damages that Donald Trump must pay related to sexual abuse and defamation. E. Jean Carroll responded today saying, quote, I filed this lawsuit against Donald Trump to clear my name and to get my life back. Today, the world finally knows the truth. This victory is not just for me, but for every woman who has suffered because she was not believed. CNN's Kara Scannell has been at the courthouse since the start of this case. She's here with us tonight. Okay, so Kara, tell us what it was like in the courtroom when that verdict was read. So the judge told everyone to assemble at 3 o'clock, and we saw E. Jean Carroll enter just about two minutes before 3. She sat down, sitting between two lawyers. And during the trial, she'd sat a little bit further down this row. So she's between two of her lawyers, holding hands with one of them. And so then, as the judge's clerk was reading the, the verdict sheet, the first question is, did the jury find that Donald Trump had raped E. Jean Carroll? 
Answer, no. Now, she was still just had her hands clasped with her lawyer. Next question, did the did, um, were, did E. Jean Carroll prove that Donald Trump sexually abused E. Jean Carroll? Answer, yes. So that was the win on the battery count. And then they went immediately to damages and then into the death. And what was their demeanor, I mean, at that moment? So she, was, she looked like she had a sense of relief on her face. Um, as they got further down the verdict sheet, she was smiling more. And, you know, she and her lawyer were, were like holding hands and just kept looking at each other, smiling. She was like leaning in and forward in kind of into the whole moment. Um, but there was no audible sounds. There was no big reaction. And in part, that's the judge said he wanted to maintain decorum. He didn't want any outbursts. So he set the table at the outset for that. And then what was the response on the Donald Trump side? Joe Tacopina, his attorney. So Joe Tacopina, um, you know, it was interesting in court. He went over and shook E. Jean Carroll's hand and her attorney's hands. And given how this was such kind of a hard fought battle, that was a, That's a classy move, a, a very classy move. And, and he said afterwards that none of this was personal. Uh, you know, and, and he, you know, essentially respected them and their lawyering. Um, you know, but so, you know, they've come out and said they're going to appeal. Um, Takapina spoke to reporters afterwards. Uh, here's what he said. Obviously, you know, he's firm in his belief, as many people are, that he cannot get a fair trial in New York City um, based on the jury pool. And um, I think one could argue that that's probably a, an accurate assessment. Um, based on what happened today. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it's something that, you know, we're very confident on the appellate issues here. So Takapina had spoken to us, um, you know, after he got off the phone with Donald Trump. So there he is telegraphing what Trump had, and he had just discussed. Now, he was saying, talking about these appellate issues. There's a couple of things they're looking to appeal. One of it is what they could not get into trial, and that was they wanted to put in testimony about Reed Hoffman, who's a big donor to Democrats. He funded in part some of E. Jean Carroll's legal defense. One of their big defenses in this case was that she was politically motivated, so they really wanted to hit that point. The other thing, they didn't want the Access Hollywood tape to come in, and that's something that Carroll's lawyers really capitalized on. I mean, they spent a lot of time in their closing arguments on that, because part of it is that they want to show where it's a pattern. So they're saying that shouldn't have come in, and some of the, the two other women who testified, who said that the former president had assaulted them in the past, that testimony was allowed. So these are all issues that they're going to raise on appeal. Speaking of the politics, Jeff? I mean, boy, uh, we add one more thing to the uh, resume, if you will, of Donald Trump. And, of course, this comes on the eve of uh, a meeting that he's having in New Hampshire tomorrow with uh, Republican voters and independent voters uh, on CNN, a town hall. So he, of course, will talk about this but or be asked about it. But um, you kind of wonder in the, uh, you know, this is a very serious matter, but you wonder if it will matter politically talking to Republicans, talking to uh, some Trump advisors, uh, they're not so quick to dismiss it. Because one thing that they're trying to go after, they have the always Trumpers. They have the people who will always be with him. But they are trying to rebrand him a bit, if you will, among some people who are not sort of thrilled with the Biden administration. And those are the suburban women, uh, first and foremost. And uh, this is not good in the long term. In the short term, in the primary, does it matter or not? It's hard to say. He is in the, the poll position here. He is leading this race. It is early. But in the general election, I heard so much worry from Republicans thinking this can't be good a year from now should he win the nomination. I mean, it's, it, sometimes it feels like a, a game of whack-a-mole with all of the many controversies <laughs> surrounding the former president. But when you speak to Democratic voters, for instance, there is nothing more unifying than a, a deep animus for the former president. 
And you also hear a deep frustration that it seems like, according to Democratic voters, that the former president seems to constantly escape accountability. So you have an instance with this outcome where it seems like he is being held accountable in some way. But I think the more that Trump is the focus, it actually uh, unifies Democrats. Um, Harry, do we have any numbers on this? How are voters feeling? So I think we have some numbers historically. And let's walk over to the wall and give you a sort of an understanding of what occurred back in 2016, right? There was the Access Hollywood tape that was mentioned And there was a great question that was asked by CBS News, New York Times, and essentially it was the allegations that Trump made unwanted sexual advantage towards women. 54% of voters said that those allegations were mostly true compared to just 41% who said mostly false. Of course, Trump was still able to win that 2016 election despite the fact that a lot of voters believed those allegations. So you might look at that number and say, okay, you know, even though this is a more serious charge, it might not have that much of an effect, it might be baked in. But I want to give you a look here, because I think this sort of is an, an interesting sort of deeper dive into the numbers. And again, it's that same question. Did Trump make unwanted sexual advantage? And this is among Republican voters, OK, Republican voters before the 2016 election. If you believe, yes, that Trump did, in fact, make some unwanted sexual advantage, Trump won those GOP voters. But just by 20 points, compare that to the no category. Trump won those GOP voters by 92 points. So if all of a sudden you get a few more Republican voters who perhaps believe that Trump made some unwanted sexual advantages towards women, towards women, that could, in fact, decrease his margin just enough to perhaps flip the general election. Maybe not the primary, but the general election. Trump needs all those Republicans that he can possibly get. Finally, I'll just point out this. These are Google searches. So people who search for E. Jean Carroll today versus Alvin Bragg on April 4th, the day that Trump was arraigned. About twice as many Americans search for E. Jean Carroll's name today than for Alvin Bragg's name back on April 4th. So I do believe that this will be able to capture at least some Americans' hearts and minds based upon their Google searches. It's certainly something they're looking at. And so we'll just have to wait and see whether or not it actually does have an effect, guys. That's really interesting, the Google searches. I mean, I do think that that, you know, puts your finger on the zeitgeist for what that's worth. Um, What has Donald Trump said? Uh, So Trump has, you know, he put a statement on True Social and he's blaming the judge. He's blaming the jury, saying he can't get a fair trial. And that's echoed in what his attorney had said, too. You know, that that his statement, he's saying, I have absolutely no idea who this woman is. The verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. Interestingly, part of the defamatory statement he was found liable for was saying he did not know who E. Jean Carroll is. So he's not deterred from repeating that even after he was found liable. Um, Jeff, as Eva was saying, you know, this is not the only case. So there are other things. And of course, we don't know what Harry was saying, how voters will respond. But it feels like this is just the beginning of what could be a snowball effect in terms of legal cases. Certainly possibly. And this is the first time a jury has rendered a verdict in a case against uh, the former president. So I think that is significant. Uh, But yes, there are other cases, as you said, whack-a-mole. I mean, I think that's a good way to put it uh, down the road. I mean, Georgia, obviously, first and foremost, interfering in the election there, uh, the federal investigation as well. I'm not sure that any of this individual cases will sort of drive voters thing. But one thing I hear again and again is this Trump exhaustion. Republicans out there who are looking for someone else say they're exhausted by the drama of this. So that, I think, is uh, kind of one of the uh, things that worries the Trump advisors, just the exhaustion about all this. And we know he'll be 
defiant. He's suddenly not going to change his posture. But this campaign is trying to run a more a professional campaign, really trying to target some of those suburban women and things. This makes it harder. Kara, thank you very much. It's great to have had you in the courthouse for all of this. Thanks for the reporting. All right, next. Truth-challenged Congressman George Santos has been charged by the Justice Department in a federal probe. Harry has done the math, and he'll tell us about Santos's campaign contributions. I was told there'd be no math, but you're going to do <laughs> you're going to do the math for us. Apparently. Fantastic. Okay, great. Congressman George Santos charged by the Justice Department in a federal probe. Santos could appear as soon as tomorrow in a New York courtroom. The charges are currently under seal, but the FBI and the DOJ were investigating allegations of false statements in Santos's campaign finance filings in CNN's Harry. Harry, <laughs> You're sure. just Harry. You're now like Madonna. Whatever. Is here to fill us in on the developments. <laughs> All right. So he's being charged for what? Yeah, I mean, so I think what I what I want to take a look at yeah. is sort of just how bad his numbers are. Okay. This, to me, is just so incredible. I've never seen quite numbers as bad as this. So this is George Santos's quarter one 2023 fundraising in his main account. So take a look at these contributions. He took in only about $5,000, which is pathetically low for a sitting congressman. Even more amazing is the refunds that he had to give back from his campaign account were a little more than $8,000. So he had to give back more money than he took in. Why is he giving money back? Because it might have been some people who said, oh, I don't want to be part of this campaign. He might have had to give in. That's one reason why. We're not exactly sure in the totality, but that could definitely be one reason why. But it's not just the fundraising. I want to give you an idea of his historically low approval or favorable ratings. So George Santos's favorable rating in New York's third district, just 7%. I went back and I tried to find people who had similar approval or favorable ratings. The only two I could find were Bob Taft in 2005, the Ohio governor at 7%, and Rob Blagojevich at 8% back in 2008. He was the Illinois governor. Keep in mind that Taft and Blagojevich were or became convicted criminals, which of course is something that may end up happening to George Santos. Finally, the idea maybe, hey, you know, maybe he has a Republican base in New York 3 that he can hold on to. Uh-uh, that is not the case. Here's the favorable rating among Republicans in New York's 3rd District. George Santos, just 11%. Of course, he's a Republican. Joe Biden, who's a Democrat, has the same favorable rating at 11%. So he is as unpopular as the truly unpopular sitting president is among Republicans. If you just tally it all up, George Santos's data is awful for him even before any charges were bought, brought. And I can only imagine that his numbers may somehow find a way to sink even lower. So, Jeff, surely Republicans will oust him from Congress. Surely they will. <laughs> or won't. And this is why. Look, uh, Kevin McCarthy's uh, majority hangs on uh, really five votes. And that is one of those votes from that district on Long Island. So Republicans need that vote. But Republicans are growing increasingly sort of worried about this. And Nancy Mace, the congresswoman from South Carolina, Republican, said tonight she believes it's time for him to go. Others do as well. We'll see if there are charges filed tomorrow, as we expect, how this will go. But they need his vote. So what Speaker McCarthy has said that if someone is convicted, then 
they move toward removing someone. Uh, but as they're charged, that is not the criteria. Again, it's a mathematics thing. If Republicans had a big majority, he would already be gone. And, you know, Allison, I've been covering this since December, several months now. And I think it, it's easy to get up, get caught up in the theater of George Santos, because uh, some of it is quite theatrical. And he in, in himself enjoys sort of relishes being notorious, it seems like. He has played into this uh, quite a bit. But you have to remember there are people that live in this district. And there are some really boring, basic things that members of Congress have to do. <laughs> For their constituents. For their constituents. Yeah. That, that these constituents sort of rely on their lawmakers for like ensuring there is federal funding for certain projects, for instance, or trusting them with really sensitive information. And all along, as I have been speaking to people that live in that district, that has been the core frustration. We, you know, whether they voted for him or didn't, they do not believe that they have a credible person in office. So I spoke to them today uh, in response to this and They said to me that it is the beginning of being heard, but now it's time for Kevin McCarthy to act. It's an absolute insult if he doesn't act now. That is a woman who is an organizer in the Concerned Citizens Group that has been advocating for something to happen for several months. They even traveled up to Washington a few months ago to try to meet with McCarthy. Really interesting, because by the time he's convicted, it'll be the next election cycle. And so... Harry, he, what does that look like? I I mean, I don't, I'm really unsure how he gets reelected. He already has a primary challenger right on the Republican side. Uh, The Republican GOP establishment on Long Island hates his guts. Uh, You already have, you know, a fellow Republican member of Congress on Long Island basically saying he has to go and he should have gone yesterday. So I don't really understand, first off, how he gets past a primary. And then if he gets past a primary, remember, New York's third district is a district that Joe Biden won by eight points. But, you know, I'll point out something, you know, jumping off of Eva's point, you know, that, look, there have been plenty of politicians who have been involved in scandals before, corruption scandals. You know, I grew up in the Bronx and uh, Mario Biagi was someone who actually went to jail for corruption scandal. But he was still well liked by a number of people in his district because he actually did his job. Right. This is what we're talking about. Congressmen doing their jobs. And it's not apparent to me from you're reporting that he's actually doing the basics of actually being a congressman. And often these corruption cases happen after someone's been in Congress for a long time. Perhaps they become too cozy, but their constituent services, often very good. I mean, look at, uh, you know, um, Rostenkowski, for example, from Chicago, a long list of people. But this happened... but effective. Exactly. (laughs) So that's why voters send them back. But this, I mean, it happened before he was elected. So uh, it's hard to imagine him making it out of a primary let alone a general. But we'll see if he makes it that far. Wasn't Buddy Cianci, in, the mayor of Providence, like re-elected from jail? For like, sure. So, sometimes that, that happens. But I like if, your point he, that he, he hasn't established yeah, right. himself. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, um, Santos hasn't established himself well enough to be elected from jail yet. I, 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 the one other thing I'll just note, you know, this is, you know, around fundraising, but there are such a laundry list of different things that, you know, these different scandals. It's like, it's like, you know, we were talking about whack-a-mole in the last segment. It's whack-a-mole here. I mean, how many, I can't even list them. What is there, 15, 20 different things he's accused of lying? I mean, he says one thing. I just believe the total, complete opposite of what he actually said. So even if he somehow manages to turn the table on this particular charge, there's such a laundry list of them. 
I'm just, the math just doesn't work as far as I'm concerned. Carrie, it's a good thing that this uh, E. Jean Carroll case is wrapped up because you're going to be busy (laughs) with whatever happens next. And like you speak of the theatrics, right? I mean, Santos actually showed up as we were waiting for Trump's arraignment, (laughs) showed up to walk around the park there that day and all the cameras were swarming around him. He just came for the spectacle and now he is on the other side of this having to show up in federal court tomorrow. It just gets curiouser and curiouser. Thank you all very much for all of that reporting. Okay, the nation is moving closer to actually defaulting on its debt unless there's a deal. There's no break yet in the stalemate between President Biden and Republican leaders. Did the president miscalculate? Jeff has some answers on that. Next. President Biden met with top lawmakers today on the debt ceiling crisis. Both Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy made it clear that negotiations are now stalled with time running out. I don't know what he thinks, what McCarthy thinks, uh, Speaker McCarthy thinks. I think he knows better. I think he knows that default would be disastrous. And I think he knows what he's passed could not possibly pass anywhere in the Congress. It's, It's dead on arrival. Everybody in this meeting reiterated the positions they were at. I didn't see any new movement. The president said the staff should get back together. But I was very clear with the president. We have now just two weeks to go. All right, Jeff is on top of this story. What happens now, Jeff? Well, here we go again. I mean, uh, what's next on the agenda is a meeting on Friday. But you're sort of wondering if there's two weeks to go. Why wait until Friday for another meeting? The reality is uh, these meetings are a good photo op. It's good that it's happening, obviously, but no one expected there to be any resolution. And in fact, there was not. Uh, They basically stated their positions and then the staff is going to meet. The challenge here is this. The White House last met. It's been 97 days since President Biden met with Speaker McCarthy and the other congressional leaders. And virtually nothing has happened over those last 97 days. So here we are on the verge of crisis. Washington, of course, never acts unless there's a brink of crisis. So in a respect, uh, this is progress because we're getting closer (laughs) to the end of the day here. But it is really hard to see the end of the road here because the White House thought that House Republicans would fracture. They thought that they would splinter and they would not remain unified. Well, Speaker McCarthy, even though it took him 15 votes to get elected Speaker, he was able to keep House Republicans unified on their position on this. So now it's the president who no longer sort of has the high ground here. And he does, A, he called this meeting today, and B, he's likely to have to negotiate. He's always saying a clean bill. And we should just say... This is not about current spending. Every time we talk about this, we should explain this is about yesterday's bill. The credit card bill, yeah. Paying your credit card bill, This is not about the Biden policies. We'll get to that at another point. And I would say maybe we haven't really seen Republicans sort of crumble here because they don't seem to be as uh, affected by external pressures as they have historically, you know, like the Republican donor class. It doesn't seem like that is weighing on their decision making. Don't they understand what like catastrophes could happen? Because we keep hearing from all of our financial experts Social Security. I mean, every, if you, military checks, if you just go down the line, it's going to be bad. Yes, yes, it, it could be. But but at the same time, the pers- the people who are beating that drum are the institutionalists. And if you don't really have respect for 
those voices, then you don't really believe them. And so I think that is why they are pushing this to the brink. I will say it's, it's going to be hard as we get closer to this to make the argument to the American people. I think they, they're going to have a harder argument to make to the American people about why we wouldn't be paying for something that already occurred, right, for a, for a bill that's already due, essentially. Yes, but aren't they saying, correct me if I'm wrong, Sure, sure. We'll get to that. We'll pay that bill. But we need you to agree that going forward, we're going to slash this and, you know, slice and dice this. That's what Kevin McCarthy wants. Exactly. They want there to be um, a deal before they raise the debt ceiling. They want there to be spending caps of Mm -hmm. some kind. And the president says that these uh, he's not going to negotiate specifically on the debt ceiling, uh, that uh, the spending should come at a later time. But what I sort of wonder, and we've covered a lot of these over the years, you think back to the, I guess the most recent example, in divided government, and that's what this is, uh, President Trump had to negotiate with Nancy Pelosi. So at the end of the day here, it's impossible for me to imagine President Biden not having to give some ground and negotiate somewhat on this. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the um, problem now for Speaker McCarthy is that his um, conference, his House Republicans also are holding fast and may not be as willing. So at the end of the day, the smart people around Washington I talked to today, Republicans and Democrats, think it's likely going to be a Democratic-only bill where a few moderate Republicans come on and support. But one question, I talked to a Wall Street executive today. He said, what's happening in Washington? He's astonished that there's not more of a sense of urgency. So to your point, I think there will be more in the couple, uh, I mean, the, the coming days and weeks about, guys, this is going to tank the markets. Who Will voters blame, Harry? So there are a few little interesting nuggets that the polling suggests the voters will blame. And there was an ABC News Washington Post poll, and in that particular poll, just by a few percentage points, voters said they were more likely to blame congressional Republicans than blame President Biden. And that's very different from what we saw in the data back during the debt ceiling crises back in the early 20, 2010s, when overwhelmingly more voters said they would blame Republicans in Congress than President Barack Obama. So when we're talking about why Republicans may not be willing to come to the table as fast or give in as fast as you might have otherwise expected, part of that has to do with the polling data. There isn't that same political pressure, at least according to the polls, that there was back in the 2010s. But getting off to, you know, Jeff's point in terms of, you know, how Wall Street and investors are seeing things, you know, we spoke about this, I think it was last week, as the debt ceiling crisis evolves and goes on and on and on. And that is that the chance of a default, according to investors, is rising rather rapidly over the past few weeks. Now, it's certainly not anywhere close to a majority chance of happening. uh, But the fact is, is that the chances of it occurring, at least according to investors, has more than doubled over the last few months. Why? Because they're at an impasse or because we're getting closer to the June 1st um, Janet Yellen suggestion? I mean, you know, it's, it's probably both of those things that are going on, right? We're closer to an impasse and there's no sign at this particular point that there's going to be a deal. As you heard the speaker say, we came into the room and re- we rearticulated our positions, and there we are. That doesn't exactly sound like very fruitful negotiations at this point. Of course, we still have a few weeks to go. Kara, I remember in 2011 covering this day in and day out ad nauseum, like it feels like now. And I remember thinking they, at the 11th hour, they came up with um, a compromise. And I remember thinking, okay, they're not going to trick me again. <laughs> Fool me once, shame on you. They're not going to trick me again. So that's why I am sanguine as I ask these questions. But it sounds like something has changed, to your point, Eva, that we're we're at a worse impasse this time around. Well, that's what I wonder, too. Like, if 
if we, I feel like we go through these cycles, whether it's the debt ceiling or, you know, a budget issue. And then there's, you know, like you say, Jeff, nothing ever happens until there's a crisis and then crisis averted. Right. So like, what do you, what do you guys think are the odds that we're, that we're going to have a problem here, that the calamity is going to happen? I mean, will there be the 11th hour deal? I mean, call me optimistic. I think there will be some type of a deal because we're on the verge of the eve of an election year and it is bad for everyone. It's bad for the president and congressional Democrats. One thing interesting, uh, a lot of pressure on the White House from academics to the president, just go it alone. Skip Congress, do the 14th Amendment. Uh, Well, there's some um, interesting legal theory on that. Uh, Scholars think, yes, he can. The president today was actually asked about that, and he said it's interesting he sort of considering it, but it's a last-ditch option because it would immediately get held up in the courthouse. Back to your beat, Karen, <laughs> um, just when you have some time. Get ready. Um, and it, it's not been tested, and that would really rattle the markets. But there mm. are some very, from Lawrence Tribe and others, uh, uh, scholars urging the president to take matters into his own hands. So if it really gets far down the road, We'll see, but the White House believes that's a last, uh, a last uh, ditch effort. I think the politics too can shift if more Americans really start to wake up to this and understand what's going on and sure. feel concerned about Social Security, their savings, and their start retirement. calling all of their exactly. Yeah, great point. Thank you all very much for all of that. Okay, so President Biden is facing plunging poll numbers in a key voting block as he seeks re-election. Eva's doing a lot of reporting on this development. She's going to look at some of the reasons behind the decline and who we're talking about in this demographic. I'm very President Biden's latest approval ratings are weak as he launches his re-election campaign. And that's especially true of one key constituency, young progressive voters aged 18 to 29. Eva's been doing a lot of reporting on this. So, Eva, why are young progressives souring on the president? So me and my colleague, Gregory Krieg, we spoke to young activists across the country And essentially, they feel as though they aren't being listened to or they are being engaged at the White House, but they describe these interactions as perfunctory. Uh, One of the uh, key issues was this uh, Alaska uh, drilling project that the administration approved. Now, the administration will say that that was already in the pipeline and no pun intended, <laughs> and that they uh, they had to do it. But but also there have been some other high-profile reversals as well, Allison, on public safety issues as well as immigration. And they are telling us it is not enough for the White House, for President Biden, to keep telling, and Democrats at large, to keep telling these young people, consider the alternative. You know, they have to come with a compelling, inspiring message. Well, is that true, Eva? Because if, let's say, it's a it's a race between President Biden and President Trump, these young progressives, they're not going to vote for President Trump, right? So what's their, what would they do, sit it out? Is that what they're saying? Well, they could sit home. They could stay at home. And, um, you know, it is, I think that also we're sort of hearing that there is this skepticism about the effectiveness of the electoral process, Right. I voted and I'm seeing the erosion of reproductive rights. Now, Republicans, though, are talking about, um, I think, some of the issues dear to this constituency in a way that is so problematic that it might push them to the other side. So, for instance, when we talk about trans uh, youth, 
Uh, These young people, if you are a young person in this country, you are more likely to know someone who is trans, have someone who is trans in your family. You're not talking about them in the abstract. And so these very uh, vicious attacks that we see on trans folks across the country, that is deeply personal to these voters. And so they could be so outraged by that on the other side that it may prompt them to support President Biden and Democrats, but it, it might not be enough. Harry, are the numbers reflecting that? I mean, frankly, Joe Biden's approval rating among young voters, they stink. Uh, I mean, that's an adjective I'd use to describe it. But ultimately, I think the question that you posed is the key question, which is how do these approval ratings translate into voting patterns? And what we saw in 2022 was that Joe Biden's approval ratings among young voters, they were similarly bad. But what actually happened in the polls? It turns out that Democrats more than held their own among voters under the age of 30. And it's exactly the reason you pointed out, which is that consider the alternative. Now, the big question, again, is do they actually turn out? Because, right, we don't have compulsory voting in this country. You actually have to go out and cast a ballot. And when it comes to the polling, what we generally see is that while enthusiasm is lacking, uh, Democrats at this particular point say they are as likely to cast a ballot or about as likely to cast a ballot as Republicans are. So I certainly agree that young voters may not like Joe Biden, but they hate Donald Trump, and that may be enough. And the White House knows that they have work to do on this. We spoke to them as well. They pointed out that this next-gen group did endorse the president. They are huge uh, Gen Z um, voting mobilization Meaning already effort. for this next election, they've already endorsed. They've already endorsed him. So they did note that. And they said that they are speaking to social media influencers. And then they're also engaging with grassroots uh, gun uh, safety organizations that are, that's an issue that's really important to young people. And so they are attacking this problem. They recognize it is a vulnerability. And the biggest advantage of all that the president has is that he doesn't have a significant primary challenger. Mm. He would really be in trouble if, say, Bernie Sanders, for example, decided that he was going to challenge him. A lot of these young voters, uh, and that's an interesting thing. He is almost as old as the president, but young voters still uh, gravitated to him because of his policies. So that's what the White House really uh, is thankful for every single day. Is Bernie Sanders going to launch a campaign? No, he's endorsed the president. In fact, I was in Michigan last week talking to a voter who said her vote for Joe Biden was specifically to stop Donald Trump. And she's going to vote for Joe Biden again because Bernie Sanders endorsed him. I said, really? And she said, absolutely. So I do think that the, the biggest advantage the White House has, and they know it, and they probably, you know, he probably says a prayer every night that there's not <laughs> a big primary challenge. Because we've seen what happens historically when presidents have primary challenges. Jimmy Carter... George H.W. Bush, it is tough for them in the general. Mm -hmm. But when you have to rely on this patchwork of constituencies, and we have to also remember that President Biden won election in really unique circumstances that were favorable to him. He didn't have to be out on the trail every day during the height of the pandemic. He was able to hold these small events, you know, speak to union workers, do these these events and uh, campaign in a style that really worked for him. It's a different ballgame this time around. Yeah, and I don't know, Kara, if young people are going to be placated by just having some social media influencers <laughs> touting the president. I mean, they really want him to respect their policy choices and to feel as though he supports them. On right. That. I mean, it's probably different than bringing Olivia Rodrigo out to tell people to get vaccinated and take COVID precautions. I mean, I think some of these issues are much weightier than what 
you know, what we're talking about here about reproductive rights, about trans rights. And that is a big a, a significant concern to voters of that age. Harry, why are you turning your nose up at Olivia Rodrigo? I don't know who that is. <laughs> you don't, the, Harry, oh this tells gosh, me that you Harry. work too much. <laughs> you work too much. You're here all the time. You don't, you don't know the biggest hit song of what Freighter, was it? You know, what? Last year, a year, two years ago, what was it? Driver's, driver's license? license? Nothing. I don't have a driver's have license. <laughs> Mud on. <laughs> Harry, Harry, but, Harry. But really, right, Allison, got, yeah. I thought this story was so important because, you know, I'm in Washington and I think the conventional wisdom is that the left will come along. And I think that that is really problematic. And that's what prompted Greg and I to do this story is that, you know, if you listen to maybe um, progressive lawmakers, they're not sounding this alarm. But if you speak to progressive voters across the country, they're concerned. I appreciate you bringing this to our attention because I hadn't known about how young voters were feeling about the president. So thank you very much, Eva. All right. Up next, on the lookout, our reporters are going to tell us what stories they're looking out for on the horizon. And we're going to find out why Harry doesn't know anything about modern day. My driver's license last week Just like we always talked about Cause you were so excited for me To finally yes. drive up We're back with our fantastic panel of reporters in our never-ending effort to educate Harry Enton to enter the 21st century <laughs> and understand who Olivia Rodrigo is. It's not working. You're really resistant to this, aren't you? I, I just think the song was just made up. I've never heard of this song before. We played it five times. I, it's a classic. It's now, classic. It's, a modern, it's now a modern classic. Okay. All right, well, every night we're going to educate you on something else because you don't leave this building. Correct. Uh, this is called On the Lookout, where our reporters tell us what they're keeping an eye on. Harry? All right, so uh, one, I am looking forward to our CNN town hall tomorrow, hosted by our great colleague, Caitlin Collins. I believe that is at 8 p.m. Eastern with the former president, Donald Trump. Uh, on the non, you know, basically sucking up uh, squirrel. Uh, I am... Was that your sucking up to our producers? Is that what you were just it's, doing? It's sucking up the to bosses everybody. Oh, no, the, the bosses. bosses. Yeah, that's okay, right. the bosses got it. Uh, this is, uh, speaking of my lack of current pop culture knowledge, uh, this week is the 25th anniversary, I believe, of the series finale of Seinfeld. Uh, 76 million people tuned into that uh, series finale. Mm-hmm. I do remember it. I can't imagine 76 million people tuning into the same event that wasn't sports or a presidential debate these days. It truly was a cultural touchstone. And if I recall correctly, it is also uh, on that same evening, Frank Sinatra actually passed. Hmm. Uh, So that was a pretty big night in American culture. Uh, That's amazing that it was 25 years ago. And also that tells me you are stuck 25 years ago. That's the last (laughs) cultural moment you remember, basically, is what you're telling me. Outside of sports and politics, that is correct. Okay, excellent. Kara? Um, I've been in a little bit of a bubble, so I'm a little behind on what's happening in the pop world. But uh, I'm I'm very even I were covering George Santos for a while, and I'm just so curious what these charges are going to be, and if there's any co-conspirators or if there's any appearance that anyone was cooperating with the investigation. So I'm just kind of that's all going to be that. unsealed tomorrow. That's perhaps. our expectation. Got it. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, Jeff. Some interesting sports and political news combined. Go ahead. Uh, the White House always has uh, national championship teams to the White House to celebrate. Well, tonight, the Georgia Bulldogs, which, of course, won the football championship back in January, beating TCU, uh, they said they declined the invitation to come to the White House. They said the date was not 
um, appropriate. And it is in June. Of course, school is out. So it is uh, perhaps that makes sense. But, but it is, what do you think? It's is raising some eyebrows. It's just interesting that they uh, declined this invitation. There's been a bit of a kerfuffle. The first lady, of course, uh, in the women's basketball championship, she sort of stepped in it by saying all the teams should come. So uh, this is just an interesting um, declining of that. But it made me think of the first time I was ever at the White House, 1995, when the Nebraska Cornhuskers, where I went to school, won the national championship. Bill Clinton invited them there. And that's where I met Wolf Blitzer for the first time. And Harry Enten. And Harry Enten, too. (laughs) So I love those days, and it's too bad that the George Bulldogs will not be there. That's great. That's a uh, great memory. All right, Eva. So South Carolina Democrats just tapped uh, Crystal Spain or voted for Crystal Spain, the first black woman in uh, the party's history in that state to lead that party. I found that Really interesting, especially in the context of another high-profile black female lawmaker in South Carolina recently left the party. Mia McLeod, who I covered last year, who ran for governor, did not feel supported by the party in the primary process when she was trying to be the state's first black female governor. And and now you have uh, the ascension of of Spain. Also, South Carolina going to be huge next year as Democrats now make it uh, the first in the nation primary, that state to be the first in the nation primary. So lots of reasons to keep an eye on that state. Excellent. Thank you all. Great to have you here tonight. A lot of fun. And we also want to take a moment to congratulate our fabulous colleague, Shimon Prokupes, and his team who have won a Peabody Award for their tireless and important reporting in Uvalde, Texas. Congratulations to them. And tomorrow on CNN This Morning, E. Jean Carroll is going to join the show to respond to a jury finding Donald Trump liable for sexual abuse and defamation. Make sure you tune into that. Thanks so much for watching CNN Tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.